I was asked by George to come up to see him and talk to him about directing, which would, would be the third Star Wars. And I had next door to zero interest. But I always admired George, so I thought I should go up and at least visit with him. And I flew up and I came into an office and there was George. And he, he talked with me for a little bit and then he said, I want to show you something. Now right about in this time, I started getting a little bit of a headache. So he took me upstairs and he showed me these things called Wookiees. And now this headache is getting, you know, getting stronger. And he showed me many animals and different things. We went to a restaurant, not that I don't like salad, but that's all they had was, was salad. Then I got a really, uh, an almost like a migraine headache. And I could hardly wait to get to home. Mulholland Drive, coming up next. Haven't seen it with Tim Sestito and Tommy Tevenet. Hello, everybody. Welcome on in. Thank you all so much for listening today. This is a podcast where one of us is watching a movie for the very first time. And today that is Tommy diving yeah. into the David Lynch epic Mulholland Drive. But you're also not the only one on this podcast who is watching this movie for the very first time. Returning again, Martin Peters from Film vs. Film. Martin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on. I am very well, thank you. It is a pleasure to come on your brilliant podcast again. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you. So, yeah, we were actually just discussing this before. Uh, you know, David Lynch, he's kind of got this, I feel like he, his infamy has kind of grown in this the 2010s, 2020s, kind of the reputation of his films has grown in terms of the surrealism of them. Uh, so you both are kind of not, haven't watched too much David Lynch, right, beforehand? New. Uh, yeah. so yeah, I kind of chose this one because, um, it's always kind of on the like top 10, if not top five of the best films of the 21st century lists. Half the time it's on number one. Uh, I think the last time I saw one, um, from the BBC in, in the UK, they had it at number one, uh, like a few years ago. And I was like, let's see what all the fuss is about about this movie. <laughs> and also, uh, the last time you guys were on the show, on my show, the Film versus Film podcast, Tim, I think you mentioned uh, some knowledge about David Lynch. So I was like, hmm, I've got a few gaps. Well, quite a few gaps, really, in my <laughs> David Lynch uh, watch list. So I thought, well, let's go with Mulholland Drive. And what a puzzle this is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's a lot to unpack for a first watch. Um, I've only really seen Twin Peaks from David Lynch. And this is a movie that, uh, Martin, I don't know if you know, but this is a troll thing for Timmy, where he tried to convince <laughs> me to watch this movie for years and years and years. And every time, like, no, fuck no, I'm not watching Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah, I, I put it in movie roulette every time it was eligible yeah. for the category. Um, and and every time it got vetoed. It was like Tommy, yeah. we hang out at our friends and he'd want to play Super Mario <laughs> Strikers. And we're like, yeah, one day. So then he was like, no, Tim. That's your Mulholland Drive. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like I'd see it, I'd be like immediately like, no, we're not watching this. Refuse whatsoever. So we finally got me to see it. And I don't know what the fuck I watched, but in a good way. <laughs> we'll we'll break it down. Um I know you just you just with your schedule, you watched it like two hours before the, yeah. the podcast uh recording. And um it's definitely a movie that I think you need it like needs to like Martin, you were saying, right? This movie just kind of sat with you a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about it a lot and just like so am I watching like a satire on Hollywood? Is this a dream versus reality thing? Is this a fantasy movie? Is this a horror film? <laughs> Is this a, just some stoner movie? <laughs> yeah. It's all those things into one, really. But I, I loved it. I think I heard a description of it from a review saying that this is like having a puzzle, but you've got way too many pieces for the picture. (laughs) (laughs) It's like it says it's got 500 pieces on the box, but you've got like 2000, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I definitely say on a first watch, it's like almost a little overbearing where you're just like, what 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 and then if you like when you guys end up in a year or two maybe watching it again it's one of those movies that you'll go um oh wow uh okay i'm starting to picture more of the pieces once you kind of have the sense of where the the film is going but let's talk about a movie that i actually never want to watch again and that was (laughs) indiana jones and the dial of destiny uh i know all three of us saw it before mm-hmm. you know when it came out so i'd love to kind of have a little round table discussion because i did not like this movie and i have very specific reasons why um on the flip side i actually did like this movie uh, i had a very entertaining time maybe my standards aren't that high for Indiana jones because it wasn't one of the pillar franchises for me but i don't know it just felt great seeing harrison ford again in the role and it definitely felt better than crystal skull I felt more emotional resonance right there. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, was a good sidekick for this compared to, like, you know, Shia LaBeouf or, like, other characters like Willie and oh, Temple yeah. of Doom. So I thought she was a good mix to the Indiana Jones franchise. But I don't know. What you, would you hate about it, Tim? <laughs> um, well, I'd like Martin's thoughts first on, on the yeah. film. <laughs> well, going in, I, I had very low expectations. So uh, I was pretty mixed on it, to be honest. Um yeah, th- this is very much a film. Like, if you're expecting an act, a really good like romp action film, you're going to be severely disappointed. Because mm. what I, I associate with Indiana Jones films is just like the really pulpy, uh, you know, creative action scenes that are kind of a, you know, ridiculous in certain ways. But you kind of love it for that, and you just don't have that here at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I understand where James Mangold is coming from. They're trying to go for this more grounded feel. And I think because of his age, he's like 78 when he made this film. Uh, I don't know if there's they're trying to make a point. This is not really a spoiler, but the, one of the first times you see Harrison Ford, he's got his shirt off. So it's just like, yeah, this guy is pretty muscly <laughs> yeah. for his age. But I'm like, well, they don't, they don't really push the action much. I mean, the Tuk Tuk Chase that you see in the trailer is pretty impressive, but apart from that, it's it's pretty disappointing from an action point of view. And even like the Tomb Raid scenes were kind of boring and not very creative. Yeah, I get that they're trying to be more, uh, they're trying to do it differently in terms of what they're going with with the plot. Um, but in terms of like story and character, that kind of 
took me by surprise as well. Harrison Indy is in a very different place emotionally in this film. So certainly story-wise, this is very different and obviously it is, has a pretty insane uh, revelation, <laughs> uh, reveal, uh, which yeah. is, I kind of went with, um, but and I think by far the best scene for me is the very last one. For sure. Interesting. I, yes. Oh, sorry, Tom. Go ahead. Um, I was gonna say, like, there's one thing I did like this movie, but I feel like Uncharted kind of ruined this type of adventure movie for me in some ways. Because <laughs> Uncharted last year was Games, such not a, the film. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess both, but the film was just such a generic, like paint by the numbers adventure story that like I couldn't help but think that I was like, Oh, this is just so generic at some points. I still find it find it entertaining, but maybe I was just like, Oh fuck, it, I got to see Indy Jones run around. I guess that's what my expectations were. So my expectations were met in that aspect. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I Martin, I, I agree with you that like it's pulp, like pulp action. It's based off adventure serials of the 1940s. That's like the whole concept yeah. of it. Um, Indiana Jones is, to me is a male fantasy. It's like every dude wants to be him. Um, yeah. Nobody wants to see him divorced at 80. Uh, that's uh, like my number one problem. It's just like you should have just you needed to recast this. You. Uh, it's nice to see him in the role. Maybe it's a cut yeah. to the future of him old at the end or whatever. And you get the little wink, wink, nod, nod. Just doesn't work. The The action sequence I needed to be good was the one where he's riding the horse through the parade. I saw that in the trailer and I said, if anything has promise in this, it was that. And it's just, it, the whole direction felt flat to me. Yeah. And I think Mangold is a, a very talented director. I, I, Logan's a great film Ford vs. Ferrari is also another great film. The direction was just flat to me. Um, this really felt like the corporate brain trust of 30 people all shoving in different ideas that bloated this project to, to infinity. Um, so for me, that was just like the most disappointing thing. So it's just like you, it, it was Indiana Jones just kind of drove a car the entire movie. That's all he's <laughs> capable of doing, which is yeah. fine because he's 80, <laughs> but like, it's clear to me that only like Spielberg and like Crystal Skull has its problems, but I think of like the the scene in the cafe from Crystal Skull and then the chase through the college campus, like that's very similar in concept to him yeah. escaping through the parade. And that is a thousand times better than that scene. It just felt like, okay, it's, we're just going through the motions of doing this and nothing clever mm. or creative was done in the filmmaking, which is why... You know, Indiana Jones done by pretty much anybody else would not have been a hit. But you take this one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Steven Spielberg. You combine George Lucas like weird ideas into it. And then you take one of the most charismatic leading men of all time. And you put that jumble together and you have a mega hit. Yeah, I, I, it just it, it's a movie that didn't need to be made. It was made. It's made exclusively to try to milk money but they put so much money into the project it almost hit a point that they can never they're never going to be able to turn a profit on it um it just it didn't feel like it had a lot of ingenuity and creativity like i, I wish mm. if we're going to follow 80 year old indiana jones like like make it a completely different movie like don't make it an indiana jones movie because you, you can't do it with him at 80 it, it is, I mean, it's a point that they have like a whole first third of that movie being um, him yeah. de-aged. The de-aging worked for me. Sometimes it, it, it was, feels a little flat. It was re it was good. It, like, it's clear where $100 million of that budget 
Yeah, <laughs> just right all in the opening scene. Because because yeah. it, it, it it's still in the uncanny valley. There it'll never yeah, not definitely. be in the uncanny valley. But like compared yeah. to to Rogue One, uncanny <laughs> valley or like the Mandalorian with Luke Sky, like much better. Um, but for me, like the opening of Indiana Jones movies have always just kind of been like quick little action scenes to just like introduce the character and where he currently is. And this felt was so epic. It should be in the middle. It should be near the end of the second act. Like it was the biggest action sequence and you put it at the beginning. It's just, it was a little tonal whiplash for me in terms of its placement. Like it's good in its execution. It's the best. It's probably the best execution in the entire film. But for me, I'm like, I'm watching a 30 minute train sequence as your opening to the movie where that feels like it should be in your towards the end of your second act of the movie. Like I would have been totally fine just if they did the parent, they didn't do the parent, they put the Paramount logo in the beginning, but they didn't do the clever transition. Well, no, they did the, in. they did the Lucasfilm. Film, logo, yeah. They? Which yeah. was which disappointing, <laughs> disappointing, <laughs> yeah. but it would have been interesting if it was like a picture of a mountain and it just zooms out and then it's Indiana Jones asleep in his chair in his apartment. And we just start the movie yeah. there. And then maybe we get that flashback sequence, like, at the mm. hour and a half mark that gives the ener- movie the energy it needed at that point to justify the, the runtime. Mm. Um, like maybe yeah. when uh, Mads Mikkelsen and Harrison Ford, and he's like, oh, I remember you. And then it fades back, right? Like I, I just mm. felt like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was too big of an opening yeah. to not. Yeah, I think... And then you didn't beat it at any point. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I still think the tuk-tuk chase was pretty cool, but I-, I agree with the opening scene. I feel like there's just a action creativity problem that it just dragged on and on and on, and they didn't really know what to do. There's a lot of, like, indie pretending to be a Nazi in that scene as well, which mm. felt a tad repetitive. Um, mm. So I felt like they were kind of really trying to write themselves out of that scene a lot, Yeah, uh, where it just kind of dragged on. I also feel like you could have just picked it up with him, you know, in the train of the Nazis, right? Like you could have cut the first 15 minutes of this out and then just cut to yeah. the, him, like, like reading a newspaper in on the train full of Nazis. And it just like picked up and it's Harrison Ford's face. Yeah, okay. The, the got it. Then that's, off. that's clever. Yeah. And then it's a yeah. 15 minute and then it's, yeah. it's there. Instead you have this yeah, whole that... 15 minute thing of him getting hung <laughs> which everybody yeah. definitely remembers and it just like yeah. it just goes and then he's driving the car and it's just like, it's like on, it's on it's a ton on. of once it just yeah. feels like uh repetitive of uh james mangle's career itself like uh how he did the train sequence in the wolverine movie i mean like this guy just loves his fucking trains apparently um <laughs> so um i mean i i did i did like the movie overall because i just felt like the chemistry did work a little bit for me i mean i think that in terms of 80 year old harrison ford you get what you get. I mean, now we hear that Tom Cruise wants to do uh, Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible yeah. <laughs> until he's 80. So we'll see how that ends up in 20 years. But, you know, not Tom do we Cruise need our action a... stars to age this much? <laughs> well, Tom Cruise is not really human, to be honest. Yeah, Tom, he's, Tom a, he's a crazy is, man. <laughs> yeah. Tom Cruise is, is a lunatic and I love him yeah. for it. Uh, yeah. Tom Cruise will train, will be in better shape than most people in their 20s when he's 80 like he will be in the top one percent of human fitness Mm -hmm. uh overall and he will still be flying planes and you know tom (laughs) cruise can fly planes and harrison ford uh can crash them pretty well but he can't uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's not he's not a great pilot 
uh, like Tom Cruise. And uh, it's just Tom Cruise seems to have a lot more creative control and vision than Harrison Ford does. Harrison Ford is more of like, not that he doesn't bring creative process to it. I'm just talking from an overall production side of things. Like he seems to have a clear vision of it where I think Harrison Ford is more invested in like the character itself and like developing that where I'd say we're going to criticize Tom Cruise. I feel like Ethan Hunt, uh, Maverick, those iterations, I'm like, he's playing the same character. He's like, I think he's just, I think he's just playing Tom Cruise at this point, which is fine. It totally works in the movies, but there's no like distinction in these characters where I feel like Harrison Ford's a better actor in that sense. Yeah, I feel like Tom Cruise is going to continue to stand on sofas for the rest of his life, really, to keep his fitness up. (laughs) (laughs) The workout regimen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm glad one of us enjoyed it. One of us (laughs) kind of, maybe, not really. Um, And then (laughs) uh, someone that despised it. Um, Yeah. You get all the opinions. I I can probably make a guarantee here that none of us will ever watch that movie again. But maybe, <laughs> yeah, on the back of a plane, maybe, right yeah. for you, <laughs> yeah, you know, just the way it was that $320 million budget was meant to be experienced, but yeah, it's uh, just insane. How much I mean, I know they filmed it a lot in like COVID conditions, so that must have burned a lot of their budget as well. So it's just it was over reliant yeah. on CG, like you got to yeah. mix, mix your we, effects and keep your costs down. We really needed old, uh, young Harrison Ford, and we really need Mads Mickelson to play the same character he's playing like 20 other movies. That guy's been a villain in like every major franchise at this point, like the vaguely, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like the same thing as Marvel, the Star Wars, yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, James Bond. Like everything, yeah. Star Trek to come, maybe. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's I the only one left. Yeah, oh, and also just to spoil it, because when they go back in the past, like when I watched it initially, I I hated it so much. Um, but I come around on it a little bit in terms of its right. schlockiness. Like it's just so over the top <laughs> ridiculous yeah. that I'm kind of like, all right, I appreciate it. Like usually in Indiana Jones movie, it's like the lesson is just leave the treasure alone. And then the people die when they just try to use it. And they actually went through with it. And I was like, I didn't know where exactly it was going. I was like, are we really going to do like, is this going to turn into 1939 and young Harrison Ford and old Harrison Ford and on a bad oh, green yeah. screen, multiverse, Indiana, up, Jones. multiverse <laughs> yeah. Indiana Jones. I was like, Oh God. Like I was, <laughs> I had the very, same wor- I was very worried at that. I was very worried in that point of time where yeah. I was like, Oh, this can get really bad. I mean, we've um, seen two Ezra Millers recently. I don't think we need two Harrison Fords. <laughs> you did. I no. refused, but uh... <laughs> no, I've not really got much interested in that film either. To be honest, <laughs> wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? <laughs> All right, as I've heard. But let's discuss Mulholland Drive. From acclaimed director David Lynch. The girl is missing. What do you want me to do? The deeper you go. I don't know what my name is. That money, you don't know where it came from. The clearer you see. I remember something. The stranger it gets. You're playing a dangerous game here. Whoever you're hiding from, they know where you are. Mulholland Drive. Rated R. So that trailer definitely leans in more on like the thriller aspect of this movie which i feel like is just kind of like the underlying mystery of it but it definitely portrays it more as a thriller which i definitely wouldn't call this movie (laughs) um like like because like the mystery the character 
the characters aren't really resolving a myth. I guess they are, but it, it's more about the audience uncovering the meaning of, of the movie is kind of the mm. thrilling aspect of it to me versus like finding out who um, Rita's or Camilla's identity is. Um, so I think just a brief plot recap of this movie for anybody that is listening to this podcast who has never seen this movie because when we start to discuss it you're going to turn this off immediately because you're going to go I I can't follow this so I'm going to give <laughs> yeah. just a a brief that's what o- Bill uh, watching it <laughs> a brief overview um a dark-haired woman it, the movie opens and the woman is a dark-haired woman is a survivor of a car crash she walks into an apartment this is uh played by Laura Elena Haring. She is called Rita. And Betty Elms, played by Naomi Watts, is this young upcoming actress who lives in her aunt's apartment and finds Rita in the apartment who can, and she cannot remember who she is. Meanwhile, Justin Thoreau's character, Adam, is directing a movie and being forced to cast a specific actress. He doesn't want to do it and his life falls apart. They mystery ensues. They go to a operatic show, a blue key and box are unlocked and Betty is now Diane. Rita is now Camilla and Camilla is dating Adam, the director and I think that's just the basic plot I can kind of give because uh, without it's a body swap film. <laughs> it's a it's a body swap film. It's it's a um, it's a character intention film. It's a it's a it's a character intention film of Diane, who is played by Naomi Watts, who envisions herself as Betty Elms, and the first the good four fifths of this movie are a dream it's the the dream of the life that when she came to hollywood she envisioned um and when she woke up um it represents a turning point in her life of something that she can't go back from and we'll discuss that more in depth so for you both on your first watch um like what stuck with you the most about this this movie i I think there was just like the surreal Lynchian thing. I mean, I've never seen like a full Lynch feature other than Twin Peaks the Walk With Me, which felt like an episode of Twin Peaks. Um, I think that why I like this movie at its best was when it felt like in the beginning more of a series of vignettes at some point. You know, like we had the scene mm-hmm. at the diner, we had the scene um, of like Justin Throw. All these kind of felt like almost like an anthology film in a little bit of just like a kind of like Pulp Fiction type S thing where just following different characters are un- seemingly unrelated until they finally get together. Um, and I just think that what stuck with me a lot was obviously the diner scene, just seeing the tension that uh, and suspense that Lynch is able to build just by just walking through a house. I mean, we have one scene of Naomi Watts just walking through her aunt's apartment for the first time. And all it is just her like looking around and just uh, it still felt so uneasy, so tense, so uncomfortable throughout just because the lack of score um, and, or if there was score is very minimalistic in a very tense way. So I just thought like Jesus Christ Lynch is a master of like his specific dream, weird adult swim-esque thing. The adult swim was uh, Dave Lynch a lot of money. That's all I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
yeah i i i really enjoyed it i it's just really interesting just trying to figure out like what i just watched really yeah i agree with you tommy as well that to begin with it's just like is this just kind of a commentary a satirical kind of look at hollywood Uh, and then you get this really bizarre scene in this theater at when they go to this place in at 2 a.m and you get all this you know silencio stuff and you're like what the hell's going on and then the characters all change and you're like oh okay was everything that i just watched a dream was it all fake are we am i now watching the real stuff now as naomi watts as diane silway uh but then hang on that can't be right because surely it must be more of a vision type thing because you see diane silway's body in her apartment so is it kind of more of a premonition thing i don't know so it's all a bit uh confusing in like a really interesting and good way uh Mm. yeah and certainly that twinkies scene in the diner was really great i remember as a kid i think um watching like the great the i don't know the 50 greatest scariest moments in films or something Mm. on tv and i saw that one and I was just like, I ain't watching that movie. <laughs> yeah. And here no, you are. Thank you. <laughs> your, your childhood yeah. self is very disappointed yeah. in you. <laughs> that was the only scene I saw beforehand because I think I saw that on some like Reddit thread of like scary movie moments. So I saw the diner scene on its own, which works as its own standalone film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So unnerving. And yet this scene shouldn't be as scary as it is because it breaks all the rules of like horror filmmaking where this character just tells you exactly what's going to happen in the moments that follows and all it is is just a guy talking at a diner to another guy and he just walks down the street and a dark creepy guy out of out of some sort of fantasy film just pops out around the corner and says nothing and the guy dies yeah uh (laughs) And I think why it's scary is because of the way Patrick, uh, what's his name, uh, Fischler? Fischler, uh, yeah, yeah. Fischler. I just know him from Jimmy as in Mad Men when he plays the guy yeah. in season two. That's yeah. where I know him from. <laughs> like the way Patrick Fischler tells the story of his dream, just the way he tells it, and you can see like the fear in his face. It's not much. He doesn't do too much, mm. but you can really sense that he's very unnerved. You know, and that just totally just informs your imagination to follow as he's walking down the street so so well done um nothing really you know happens that's as scary as that to follow uh in the film um yeah so that that was definitely a scene i one of the best scenes i would say in the film yeah and i think that scene on on rewatches is the scene that's supposed to tell you early on that this is a dream um in a lot of interpretations of this film the black the creature the black man woman whatever it is mm. is the representation of diane's guilt because i think the one thing we didn't let up because once the dream sequence is done after the silencio club scene yeah and we see diane and her actual self there's a shot of of her and there's a blue key the blue key is on the on her table yeah and then it's gone and then it cuts to camilla who is rita in the dream in the apartment and it's clear that they had some sort of relationship you know an intimate relationship um Mm -hmm. and 
she goes she decides to uh, she goes to this party at Justin Thoreau's house um, Adam's house and they're together they're announcing their engagement and then it cuts to her at the diner and we see her with a hitman yeah giving money the purse full of money and sliding a headshot of her over and he hands her that blue key and he says once this happens it can never come back like you you can't come back from this are you sure you want to do this so that was the moment that diane decided to kill camilla out of jealousy because she just never had the career and the success mm. that she had and she's a jaded lover who's still in her life and just feels envious and and jealousy and that's what the whole first but then like could that scene be like the start of the story maybe whereas yeah. maybe the hitman is like in linear sto- know... in linear storytelling yes but yeah he you know that i don't know the hitman has kind of hired someone to crash into that car that laura haring is in and then mm-hmm. you go from there i don't know <laughs> yeah it's, and it, that doesn't make sense because it's the same actress Naomi was. <laughs> yeah i i definitely think this is gonna be a film that i'm gonna need to like unpack a lot because on first watch mm-hmm. mostly what i'm just thinking is just like what the fuck i mean there's that's why like yeah, i like it like, gets more <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah in a good in a good way i guess but like that's why like the vignettes just stood out for me a little bit more where like i just love the introduction to adam keshler uh justin throughout this movie where that feels like almost like a completely different film where it's just like yeah just some it seems comedy like a of, comedy <laughs> yeah a comedy of some guy who just has the worst day of his fucking life where he gets fired from his job his wife's cheat on him he gets beat up by billy ray cyrus great cameo um, by billy ray cyrus <laughs> yeah, great cameo I didn't know that was uh, Miley Cyrus's dad until you told me, Tim. I was like, oh, shit, that makes sense. He was great in this movie where he was just like, hey, man, just pretend you didn't see anything. It'll be a lot easier for you. <laughs> just like the understanding guy. I was like, hey, I know you fucked your mm-hmm. wife, but you know, I, I understand this is uh, hard for you, bro. <laughs> but you just got to leave, dude. You got to leave the property. And then yeah. I love yeah. when he takes the jewelry box and puts the paint <laughs> in it. Yeah. Like, that is the perfect reaction. Yeah. And even though yeah. his wife, we get like two minutes of screen time, you get that she clearly a materialistic kind of person yeah so him taking that taking probably what she loves the most in this world and destroying it all is just perfect the perfect way to (laughs) to get back and spite her um yeah Yeah, it it doesn't bother just trying to steal it you know untouched unblemished no i'm gonna pour (laughs) i'm gonna ruin it paint on it (laughs) yeah i mean i could could have seen the rom-com version of him just as the lead mm. playing that character (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, I love, I love the board meeting scene, you know, with the espresso. <laughs> I find it really funny where Justin Threw is this, you know, he's this film director type character, wondering why he's there, and these kind of mob boss type figures come in, and one of them slides across the photo of Camilla Rhodes without even looking at the producer. Then there's so much tension about like the espresso being served to this guy, and when it's. Uh, and when he just lets the coffee just drop out of his mouth, it's really quite funny. And all the and all he says is, "This is the girl." <laughs> while the other guy he screams, you know. And all the while, Justin Theroux is just confused about what the hell is going on. And and um, you know. And the one of the weirdest things is is the fact that he's got a golf club on the table, and it's like he's expecting the situation to go bad. Anyway, you know. And obviously, the scene later, he's just smashing up the gut those. 
my yeah, boss's car, car with the with the, with mm. the club. So, um, yeah, that was pretty funny to me. That scene. <laughs> um, apparently, I feel, that like, was based... I feel like I feel like as well that was part of like the TV pilot because obviously this started mm-hmm. out as a TV pilot. I read, uh, yeah, and then they, I guess they didn't go ahead ahead with it, and they were like, well, maybe make it take what you have. And that scene was probably part of what he Lynch had already and just extrapolated onto yeah. that into a feature. You you uh, could really feel the TV aspect of this. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but like the first half of this movie, I feel like was definitely majority of the pilot. Because if from what I remember reading, the pilot was only supposed to be like 90 minutes or something like that on ABC. Um, we probably wouldn't have had a lesbian sex scene in the pilot. Um, <laughs> I could say that much. ABC probably wouldn't have developed that one. But Or, um, or, a, or a sad masturbation scene. Yeah, that too. Yes. That's that probably that's probably added for the theatrical cut. But um, overall, I mean, like that's why we have this little vignette parts and stuff like that. Because, but I'm wondering, like, what would be the ongoing thing of the TV show? I couldn't imagine this being stretched out for like two or three seasons. Because, like, yeah. would just be like, oh, who is who, and just like some weird body swap TV show that probably not hold up that well over long form. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would have been structured differently. Um, I mm-hmm. so I have the Criterion. Uh, blu-ray of, of this movie surprise, this surprise. So, fancy. <laughs> so, so i watched after i watched the movie i watched an interview with david lynch and naomi watts and lynch said that the reason it didn't get picked up for production is because the guy watched it at six in the morning with a cup of coffee taking phone calls going in and out and saying he didn't like it the executive who was going to green light the show or not so and then he it took them like a two years or something to get the to get it into production for film and he was very worried that the project wouldn't even get picked up um so i don't know what might have changed in that time but i imagine the ordering of events would have been different i i think you probably would have started with like probably done something different with the murder of camilla right and then yeah. mm. and then like you would probably just have to put that tease in the front to to add the suspense to it where in a film, you can make it more interpretive. Like I and like I was saying, Twin Peaks is probably Lynch's most digestible work to mass audience because mm-hmm. it has that the murder, the setup of the murder right at the beginning. Like you, you get what's happening. Who did it? It's a who done it, and then it just goes into Lynch wackiness, and he it's- adds more and more concepts to, on top of it. If you're watching this on like a fucking Friday night on ABC and it was just like the TV pilot version, like the first 20 minutes, you'd be like, what the hell is on my screen? I'm going to change the channel. I, yeah, I feel like that, um, unless you're for the David Lynch vibes right there. Apparently, uh, Lynch said that, uh, you know, he uh, ABC and him thought the, uh, his cut was too slow and he didn't like the cut he turned in. He thought it was kind of shitty. It was just like, you know, there's no texture, uh, no big C's, no storylines, anything like that. So he's very ashamed. He's kind of, just, I think, happier that this ended up becoming a movie. Yeah. Because, yeah, it makes more sense theatrically, I think. And I would say this is probably his strongest work. Um, seeing a good portion of his library, I've seen Eraserhead, Elephant Man, um, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, all of Twin Peaks, and this. That's what I've seen of Lynch um and yeah i think this is this is one of those movies that it it just has this this staying power with it and part of it is just like unlocking the mystery more and more in your head and uncovering what your Mm -hmm. interpretation of it is like lynch says like he, he never gives any explanation of his works he would rather you come up to him with some insane theory 
and be like, that's great. That's what you saw in this movie. And he makes his films that way. And I, I, you feel that in the design of it, where it, it really doesn't mm-hmm. intentionally tell you what it is. And it honestly makes you go, what, what is the meaning of this? Um, and it, it, it adds enough layers. Because for some people, it could just be a straight up satire of, of Hollywood and the way it treats people. And it definitely has those elements in there. But I wouldn't say that was the meaning of the movie. I would say it was a, yeah. a, a story of jealousy and uh, just an examination of the mental state of of uh, Diane and how she just descended into madness and follows the dream of her the night that she has her former lover killed. Yeah, I think Lynch in this film, he you know, he, he has enough like accessibility for, for a mass audience to like get you hooked into this film in terms of like, you know, the 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 views on Hollywood, the the perspectives on, on Hollywood. And so once he's got you hooked in that first half hour, hour or so, yeah, you got a few like kind of vignette type scenes dotted in there with the hitman which i found that scene pretty funny as well so there's enough like humor in there to keep you going um so then once you're pretty much you know in the driving seat in this film really connecting with these characters with naomi watts you know then he can he's afforded to like put the, the more weirder crazy stuff in there uh for me and and then the theories that audiences come up with, you know, are more plausible. Well, not plausible, but more, they get you thinking more. If you have like a shit ton of like crazy stuff at the start, you're like, mm, you're going to get lost easier, eat more easily if it's <clears throat> a bit less balanced in, in that way. Um, so, yeah, I think Lynch in this film, it's just, he brings just a perfect balance of drawing, drawing you in with, something that's familiar in like a in a mystery type genre and then mixes all these other genres together to eventually having her parents being th- three inches tall and then yeah. grow larger and end up killing her <laughs> yeah. um he definitely yeah like eases you into the reader lynchian shit um at least in this one so i mean the worst we have is patrick fletcher in the beginning but other than that i mean like you know it feels a little surreal i mean one thing i love about lich's style is that the style of acting in this is just so unconventional and weird it kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of like uh italian um giallo yellow whatever i forget about it. Ira, but giallo. yeah I, yeah giallo um like you know suspiria movies like that where the acting style is just very so in some ways over the top Naomi watched this movie I felt like was just a very certain uh, type of acting right here um very just... yeah, it's quite heightened isn't it it's you yeah know, the there's definitely like a dream like quality to just the visuals as well but her acting especially well kind of from both of them Laura Haring Har- as well and mm-hmm. um, there's a dream like heightened quality um that you know their dialogue delivery isn't as natural as it could be compared to you know, the last 20 minutes or so when you get, you know, the changes of characters. Yeah. And it becomes way more real once mm-hmm. that blue box is unlocked and the dream is over mm-hmm. um, and you get stuck into the reality. And then you get the the setup of what, why did Diane go through with it? Like, what did Diane do? Like, why are we in this shift? 
because it, it, I said it before, there's the one scene right after where the blue key is on, on her table and then it's gone. Like it's almost instantaneous. And that is yeah. just the shift of that. That is just to know that, okay, the murder happened, but you don't know what happened. So now we're going to build you up into that. And it's just those subtle details in the story. And I just, I think for a movie that is four fifths of it is just a dream and for it to be that captivating and to give you a full insight into a character's psyche that way is just incredibly inventive and creative storytelling yeah. that I just don't, like no other director could make this movie. Like this is a David Lynch film and yeah, 100%. No, nobody it's... else could even touch it because if you had a more surrealist director, it would be too jumbled or too thing. Like he mm. really found the line of accessibility and yeah. and uh and surrealism and kind of and blended them together and this is probably his magnum opus yeah because mm, the, sure. the terrible version of this is just like you know it's just way too like even more so confusing just unengaging and like the acting just seems like it's intentionally awful, uh, awful and stuff like that and just god awful it's crazy for this movie being known as like one of the greatest movies of all time how at the time with the academy they didn't really like you know, this wasn't really an awards winner whatsoever. I mean, at the yeah. Academy Awards for the Oscars, it was only nominated for Best Director. Um, Naomi Watts should have been nominated for Best Actress instead of Renee Zellweger. She probably yeah. should have won Best well, Actress. If you look at the year for the podcast, yeah. if you look at the actor um, list that year for Best Actress, it was Monsters Ball of Halle Berry, uh, Judy Dench, Nicole Kidman and Moulin Rouge, Sissy Spacek in the bedroom, and then. Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones' Diary? Like, what the fuck? What are we, <laughs> what are we, what are we doing here? Why is oh, she nominated God. over Nomi Watts? <laughs> yeah. The, That's this, why the Oscars are annoying and pointless. The, yeah. The, the, Oscars, <laughs> the Oscars used to be a, a good representation of great films and movies people watched, and they have now descended into movies nobody watches yeah. because indie films or you know these you know more prestige films they don't get backing of distributors and mm. the marketing efforts put behind them and all hollywood studios create are superhero movies so you don't you're not going to get that as a best picture nominee unless you're the dark knight um where a movie is truly elevated to a different level uh yeah so i for for me, I, I mean, like on my third watch, like I think this is the most I've enjoyed this movie, and I right. like yeah. just remember that my first watch of it, I just was like sitting on my couch, just like for ten minutes after, like just trying to process what I saw, uh, and, mm -hmm. and having like goosebumps over it because like I just I kn knew I could get it. I just was like, what what is this? And like had to really think about the movie and think about what. And like process and i just i feel like well, even a lot of great movies that, that like we cover on this podcast you, you you know what happened like we just covered goodwill pot goodwill hunting on the podcast and we knew but like that movie doesn't leave you with this this like feeling of like processing and uncovering the clues like you are a detective watching this movie yeah yeah, you're like the detective character in this film, and yeah, Robert Forrester, who is who, who is in the title credit, title credited, and he has about one minute of screen time in the entire yeah. movie. One so scene. good, good, good on his agent negotiating yeah. that, <laughs> negotiating that deal. I think you know, for me, like the first half of this film is all kind of like a dream vision sequence, and it's and it's no accident 
that the first half of the film is much longer than the second half because dreams always feel longer than reality, right? You know, mm-hmm. when the film switches to these, you know, these seemingly different characters played by the same actors, all all the scenes feel like quicker and more depressing, especially for Diane, of course. So I, so I totally understand like the structure of, of um, of where the where they where Lynch puts puts the marker where okay we're gonna change it here like, you know, basically at the. There's not really acts in this. It's it's just the last twenty minutes. Yeah, um, and I, you know one of the other things that is interesting to point out is the amount of control that Betty has over Rita in in the dream sequence versus how she has yeah. absolutely no control of her in in real life. Where even to the point that the disguise they're putting on Rita is in a, a duplicate of her hair, right? So it's like this power control, this power fantasy. Even though, yeah, even though Betty is such like a, a such a warm and kind and just like this idyllic, this idyllic mm. girl coming in. It's, yeah, it's the idyllic idyllic love affair for for Betty, you know, slash Diane. What what she uh, what she hoped her life would have been and it it didn't turn out that way and like i mean i don't know like there might be some world of truth in there in terms of like there's a great sequence where where she was auditioning for some tv show yeah um where naomi watts that was like a master class of, of acting like it was just it was truly incredible um like her chops in that sequence and then when she's Diane and at the party, she mentions that producer and mentioning that, yeah, Camilla just got me in on the background, but the producer, Bob, didn't love my, didn't, didn't care for yeah. me that much. Where Bob was the one who like gave her like a rounding ovation during that audition scene. Yeah. So it almost feels like they inverted, like she inverted in that dream, mm. the path that her life would have gone on. And this yeah. is just when the girls were kind of lovers and both starting out in Hollywood and just went on such a different veering path of yeah. success and com- and uh Diane is just so reliant on Camilla for any acting work whatsoever um mm-hmm. and she just has no power over her in a relationship so it just exposes that this is not the kind-hearted person that you that you're being led to believe it is and it's just so subtly infused especially mm-hmm. in your first watch because you don't know what the hell is going on yeah yeah i love that rehearse uh that audition scene you know it's just the the chemistry there between those two actors is like off the chain <laughs> and you're yeah. like you know i imagine auditions like that don't go like that all the time <laughs> so again no. this is very much like an ide- idealistic view of how she thinks how she wants this audition to go mm. and yeah and Again, you know, this is very much an idealistic vision for for Betty slash Diane, you know, even in terms of the fact that there's like excitement and danger in her story of trying to find out what happened to Rita. You know, that's kind of an idealistic thing in a way as well. Right. You know, of that this being involved in this kind of mystery thriller um, like you're in your own movie (laughs) yeah um the more you understand that like the first half is like a dream logic thing the more it kind of like makes makes it better for me this movie like more and more we talk it out because at first i was thinking some things where it's just like 
why did Naomi Watson not be immediately terrified that there's some random girl in her aunt's shower that she doesn't even know? <laughs> you know, like all this other stuff. Where it's like you think yeah. that she's like illogical character choices, logical things, but then once you think like, oh, this is just a surreal, idealistic version of her life that she's like, oh, okay, like that understands that makes sense that this is falling into place a little bit more. It's almost fairy tellish with like a hint yeah. of thriller to it. Like it blends those yeah. two together. Like the like. She moved to Hollywood and she's about to become a star. Some casting agent wants to take her to this big movie that's getting because she thinks she could get she could get cast into this movie, no problem. Even mm-hmm. though she's been in Hollywood for four days. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that's just not how the, the world works. Um, so it's it's again, it's yeah, I'm I'm glad we're like this is gonna be probably our longest episode of the podcast, but it's definitely a movie that you need to discuss and and unwrap and i i think that's just another testament to the movie because tommy and i sometimes talk we cover good movies but like you know there's just we'll be like yeah there's just not a ton of meat on the bones of this movie yeah. um <laughs> this is that's not the case with mulholland drive no. <laughs> yeah. i am a star i'm a star i'm a star i'm a star i am a big bright shining star all right so for everybody who is the star of the show who who brought the thunder the most? Who gave the best performance? It's got to be Naomi Watts, right? You know? Yeah, <laughs> she's pretty fantastic. <laughs> um, just that the contrast of characters that she's playing from, you know, going through this very heightened, but not too. She's not going through it too much. I think that's important to say that she's not a caricature in the first hour, hour and a half. You know, there's a little heightened level. Um, but not too much to turn you off. And then it's like ultra realism, miserable, <laughs> miserable stuff in, in the second, in that last 30 minutes, 20 minutes or so. Uh, and yet still dealing with some really surreal stuff with her tiny parents. Yeah, this is, uh, I, yeah, obviously I think it's uh, Naomi Watts right here. This was a career making performance for her. She was really kind of just like struggling in like, you know, terrible B movies. I mean, like she was in Tank Girl, which I saw for the first time recently as like a bit side character. And that movie's not exactly known to the test of time right here. So, I mean, this movie just showed her range right here, just like how she can play within the Lynchian vibe. And like, even if it's slightly heightened, slightly over the top, it didn't feel like bad acting. It just felt like, she's mastering what Lynch wants out of her right here. So um, yeah, I think it's easily her. <laughs> yeah. And in the interview, Naomi even said there were points where she would, they would do takes and Lynch would be like, no, 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 just bring a little bit more out of it. And she was like, ultimately it was my trust in David to do what he wanted, just knowing his body of work to bring it to that level. Cause it felt so unnatural to her when she was Betty like she said, the scene of mm. like when she lands at the airport and she's coming down the escalator, she's like looking around, like eyes wide, like like <laughs> this, and and she and she was like, this just feels so like corny and cheesy, but yeah. just it, a shopping center, David. <laughs> yeah, and it, it just nothing special here. <laughs> it doesn't Whatever. it doesn't come out that it doesn't come out that way in the in the film. And yeah, Naomi said that you know she'd been in Hollywood for ten years, like. She said she's faced so much rejection. She had built this wall in front of her face, like like just layers of it. Because she'd meet these directors who wouldn't look her in the eye, wanted to have a two-minute conversation with her and see if that was the girl. So she just built up such a layer of, of defense and said that when David just sat down and just had like an actual conversation with her and just looked her in the eyes, 
And she just felt that like wall like disappear in front of her face. And and David said that it she just had the this like lightness to her that he felt was perfect for this character and what he envisioned. Um and yeah, that was that's how Naomi got the got the role. Um basically because she got she was pretty unknown at this time. This was the role that made her. Yeah, she was a great schlock like Chill of the Corn Part Six before this movie. So I mean her career definitely took a step uh-huh. up. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah. took a step up. Ah, are you ready, comedy partner? Waka waka. So, boys, boys, <laughs> hear me out. Hear me out. Mulholland Drive, Muppet adaptation. It, they've never done a dream like surreal sequence with puppets. No, <laughs> no. I, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying. What if what if the first half was just Muppets completely, and then once it gets to the real world, it's just all of a sudden just like everyone's just normal. They're all <laughs> yeah, they're all human. <laughs> or, or the other way around, other way around. The dream sequence is all human, but still like, they're human, life. but still furry. Yeah, still That'd furry. Be David Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get to the non-dream sequence, so it's like oh, they're all Muppets the whole time. It was Kermit having a dream about him being <laughs> Naomi Watts. <laughs> yeah. Would this be a complete uh, bastardization of David Lynch's magnum opus? 100 percent. does that yeah. not mean that i still don't want to see a muppet adaptation of it and watch it ten thousand times i i do i still do i understand that it that it's wrong i understand that everything about that sentence is incorrect it would be a financial failure in the magnitudes that dial of destiny could only dream of but i i, I still want to see it i i mm. i that just make that movie for me disney that's all i'm asking yeah. for you i'll even improve my score of dial of destiny if you decide <laughs> to make mulholland drive I, i'm here to barter you're, i'm here to barter we're the specific niche audience for this so it will be only three people in the theaters <laughs> <laughs> and i'll go and i'll go mm. and i'll go and it would just it would just be wonderful but uh yeah no this would not work as a muppet adaptation not even in the slightest no. Uh, it certainly would be a lot less sexy as well in those scenes. So. <laughs> Just Miss Piggy and Janice. <laughs> speak, speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. Uh, all right, boys. Review time. Give us your scores and your final thoughts out of five. Uh, Tommy, why don't you kick us off? This is kind of tr- uh, tricky to review for a first time watch because I feel like this is a movie that, like, in order to get a complete review, I need to rewatch this like two or three times. I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did like this movie. Um, like I said, the first time watch was very confusing. I think I liked this movie a little bit more on my first watch when it was more a series of vignettes. Then once you got into the little longer form narrative, it kind of lost me in some parts. Um, but I think with a rewatcher three or four. Um, that score definitely improved. So um, at this juncture, I'm going to give it a 3.5 out of 5. And I am anticipating that to go up on rewatches. <laughs> yeah. What parts lost you, Tommy? Um, I'd say once it got to like the blue key thing, until we uh, explained it and like talked it out, I was just like, what, what the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> yeah, because that's one of the really interesting things is when you get to the blue key scene in the box. Like when they come back from the theater, like... Naomi Watts' character just disappears in a cut, and then mm. you you stay with Diane, uh, mm. you stay with Laura Harding, Haring, and she's the one opening the box up, and she kind of gets sucked into the box. So you're like, oh, is it her dream? <laughs> mm. So that's where kind of Lynch is fucking with you a little bit. That's mm. that's where Lynch is kind of fucking with you a bit in that mm. part, you know, of, of making you a little bit more confused. 
so he's I feel like he's being a bit naughty there as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um with the narrative there. But um yeah, still pretty fun. Yeah, I think I would I would probably go with four out of five, mainly I think I would probably say that I would prefer Blue Velvet for me out of the only two three Lynch films I've seen. But yeah. you know, I agree with Tommy. I think if I watch this more and more, um I would probably bump up to a five for sure um but as a first watch i absolutely loved it um but there are some scenes where i'm like what <laughs> what you where is this going um yeah yeah and i probably would have felt similar to you gentlemen on my first watch um but now that i'm on my third watch of it um i'm going to give this a five out of five no surprise sure. to Tommy or Martin here, based on the way <laughs> I've been talking about the movie, I would assume for the audience, not as not as well. They probably were expecting a five coming out of my mouth. Um, yeah. This is just a, a movie of like unbridled creativity, just like even scenes where you're like, you don't know where it's going. It's just, it has this captivating humor, this captivate, like these captivating performances that isn't bad acting but it's just it's odd and it just it, mm. it, it, it it keeps you drawn in it keeps you going through it and i i think just the presentation of a simple murder story like if ultimately what the story is it's a jaded mm. lover turning revenge and then you just spend the whole fourth you know two hours of the 26 minute run two hour 26 runtime of this movie exploring the dream and understanding the psyche of why this person is going through it in a non you know, non-linear, unconventional way. I, I just think it, it's a kind of movie that one wrong scene, one wrong turn, one slightly off performance, uh, the movie can crumble. And I think being able to deliver this all together um, makes it one of the greatest films of all time and easily one of the greatest films of the 21st century. Um, I would highly recommend it. If you do watch this, please put your phone in a drawer. Like yep, you, that's you what I did. To, you need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I told Tommy ahead of time. He's not as much of a phone face as he used to be. But yeah. Tommy used to be quite a phone face. But I was like, Tommy, put uh, your phone in a drawer. Yeah. Make yourself some hot coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I try and do whenever we watch a movie on the pod. But um, there's sometimes when I'm watching yeah. some terrible B movie by myself. And I'm just like, yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, my phone's more. My phone's more interested at this point. <laughs> yeah. That that's fine. Uh, if you're watching Naomi Watts's early career for a filmography watch, yeah, you can take just, girl. Yeah, don't you, you watch can, that. You, <laughs> you can just you can go ahead and just put your phone out. But uh, five out of five, um, just a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, and yeah, boys, thanks for watching and indulging me. I know Martin wanted to watch this. Tommy, the only way I was going to get him to watch this movie was on a <laughs> podcast. I think this uh, is half the reason why I made the podcast so I could eventually watch Mulholland yeah, Drive. Yeah, <laughs> almost two years later, Tommy, I finally got you to watch the movie I've been asking you to watch for five years. Um, oh, thanks to me. <laughs> thank you, Martin. Thank you for joining this Pleasure. wonderful conversation. Uh, yeah. a really great episode here. Uh, film versus film. I know Boaz couldn't join us, unfortunately, but Martin, can you tell the people where we can where we can find you? Yeah, uh, you can find us on all uh, pod-catching devices where you find this one, I suspect. Uh, we're on social media, uh, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Uh, on Twitter, we are FEF underscore podcast. Yeah, we've got some exciting episodes coming coming up. 
depending on when this episode comes out, but we've got uh, an Indiana Jones episode, Temple of Doom versus Last Crusade. We did we've Temple got of Doom. Oh. A, we've got a, yeah. a Dial of Destiny spoiler special. We're going to do uh, an in Mission Impossible episode. That's going to be the first Mission Impossible versus Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, and we're going to do a Chris Nolan one as well this month. Uh, in relation to Oppenheimer, where we're doing Dunkirk versus Inception. So that should be Ooh, a lot of fun. And check nice. those ones out and hopefully do a spoiler special on Dead Reckoning as well. Very nice. Yeah. Please go listen to Film vs. Film. We always have a ton yeah. of fun when we go on and discuss. We, we did um, Speed and uh, Leon, Leon, the Professional. Leon the Professional last time. And then we did. Um, Jojo Rabbit and the Hunt of the Wilder People, right? Was that yes, that's correct. Tiger? Yeah. Yeah. So those are both great episodes. Go check them yeah. out. Um yeah, if you're offended by sausage politics, sausage eating politics, then avoid the Taika YTT episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good good spoiler. Good spoiler warning there for, for yeah. the uh the sausage offended people in the yes. in the audience here. Um so Tommy, any final thoughts before we uh wrap this up? Um, yeah, I need to be uh, a little more sober when I'm watching this movie next time. So, <laughs> uh, that'll be my second watch. <laughs> I thought you watched this at seven in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, anyway, wake up for you. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a wake up right there. Get get my lunch in right there. Uh, so, anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. You can listen to us um, uh, on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five star review. Um, leave film versus film with a five star review. Help. This is how it helps grow the show. Great month coming up. Uh, we're going to have it enough because Arnold Schwarzenegger's birthday is coming up later this month. And we have to decide if we're going to watch Commando, Total Recall, or Conan Barbarian. So, um, you know, still figuring out which one to watch. And we need your guys' help. Not so. Predator? Come on, man. And well, Predator, predator. we've both seen. We've yeah. both seen uh, Predator. Yeah, fair yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we covered Terminator last year. So we got to me. Do it now. Get to the <laughs> chopper. <laughs> um, I can watch Terminator movies, Genesis. So. That's true. I'm, we no, I'm, ki- I'm no. kidding. But, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, we definitely should. But uh, there's two Terminator film alive. <laughs> there's two yeah. Terminator movies. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and also follow us on social media uh, at CNITPod. That's on uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and now we're on Threads. Uh, you, you don't know. need to promote Threads. I don't think we're it's on Threads now. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be around long. Uh, tw- Twitter is crack for people. I don't think they can quit it. Yeah. <laughs> So is Threads just the alternative to Twitter at the moment? Is yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's Instagram's version, but it it just takes all, all right. of your data and it. Uh, uh, no, I saw a picture of the the terms and conditions of what they take. They take your private financial information from you. So very what? good. Yep. Well, oh, yeah. great job for me. Sign us up. So <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it was you. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, don't worry about Threads. You can follow us on Threads if you have it, but. Nah. <laughs> Watch the weird. It's not a great, not a great name. It's not a great name. I don't know. It's the name of some like nuclear holocaust movie from the eighties, and that's all I can think about when I hear threads. <laughs> this is where my mind goes. Yeah. <laughs> you should you should thread that out, Tommy. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Just think of Instagram, I guess. Right. <laughs> We're running off the rails now, here, boys. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week. <laughs>